What's up everyone? I just wanna say thank you so much for making Change Agents top the charts in Apple society and culture. We're so excited to kick this season off. So many heavy hitting, impactful episodes to come. But before we kick things off, real quick, if you've noticed Andy looks great in his ironclad hat, you can get this and many more ironclad products at shop.thisisironclad.com. It's at the link in the bio. Thanks so much for making Change Agents happen. We love you all, goodbye. How can I help? How can I be useful in ending needless suffering? Do not be afraid of work that has no end. We have to organize a social movement. We have an opportunity to lead by example versus just talking, hot air. I think the more people in this fight, the more we grow. Eventually it could change. You know, the people are the ones that can make the change. How much time do you spend thinking about water? The water that we have unfettered access to, the water that comes out of the tap every time that we turn it on, the water that we bathe in every day, the water that's in our toilets, the water that we can get any time that we want to at convenience stores across the world. Well, today I'm going to be talking to Scott Harrison, the founder and CEO of Charity Water and also the author of the book, Thirst. He took his life from being a club promoter in New York to founding an organization that is trying to tackle the access to clean water problem across the globe. More than 770 million people lack access to clean and safe drinking water on Earth. 43% of deaths from waterborne diseases are from children under the ages of five years old. And in Sub-Saharan Africa, women are responsible for 72% of the water collection. If you're anything like me, I don't spend much time thinking about the water. How do you go from being a nightclub promoter to trying to solve the clean water crisis in the world? <laughs> I mean, that's not a that's not a really short, uh, you know, one sentence answer. Oh, it's two <laughs> but sentences. Doesn't, doesn't everybody? Yeah. Doesn't every nightclub promoter do that? Well, let's talk about how did you become a nightclub owner? Are you born and raised in the New York area? Well, I was born in Philadelphia uh, into a conservative Christian family. Uh, when I was four years old, there was this freak carbon monoxide gas leak in our home that almost killed uh, my dad, my mom, and me. But it didn't. Uh, but my mom was the canary in the coal mine uh, when she passed out uh, on New Year's Day, 1980, and just collapsed on the bedroom floor. So obviously something was wrong. You've got a healthy woman, you know, down on the floor. And this led to uh, a series of blood tests, which eventually discovered massive amounts of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream. And what had happened is we just moved into this new house, energy efficient house. It was billed as, which is great unless your house leaks carbon monoxide. Yeah. <laughs> it was what in the was dead the of winter source? And was it, it was a, a faulty heat exchanger. Yep. It was a heat exchanger. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. My dad had you know suspected maybe something was up because there were headaches and migraines and he actually invited the gas company to come out and check everything and they said oh everything's fine so after you know they detected the carbon monoxide in her bloodstream uh they they found the leak uh, i remember my dad i was four at the time and my dad ripped out the heater and threw it out on the curb uh and unfortunately the the damage was just done uh, with mom's health. So she was an invalid. She was you know, disabled from that point on. 
And what happened to her was her immune system just shut down. Its ability to fight off anything chemical, any toxins was forever compromised. Dad and I were a little sick. We had some health, uh, some kind of allergy issues, and, and we bounced back pretty quickly because we were just spending the nights in the house. Uh, anyway, all that to say, that was kind of the backdrop of childhood. So I, I grew up as a caregiver for my mom um, in a very Christian home. I didn't smoke. Uh, I didn't drink. You know, later on, I didn't drink. I didn't have sex. I was kind of the good Christian kid who was going to become a doctor when I grew up so I could cure mom and other sick people like her. Okay. Uh, and then 18 happened. <laughs> I had it planned out. And then 18 <laughs> happened. And I discovered that New York City was only about an hour and a half away. And people were having a whole lot of fun there. Uh, and they were having fun smoking and drinking and doing drugs and having sex. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I had this kind of, you know, well, now it's my turn. Uh, I, I lost my childhood. I didn't have any fun. Uh, I don't want to be a doctor. I want to you know, chase beautiful women around the world. And I want to drive a Ferrari one day. And uh, I stumbled into this bizarre profession as a nightclub promoter. And I realized that if you could rally, you know, the rich and beautiful people and move them from place to place, they would spend $25 on a cocktail that cost 25 cents to make. Uh, they would spend $1,000 on a $50 bottle of champagne. I think and we call you could that make a whole margin. lot of money doing this. <laughs> That is margin. Yes. Now there's obviously <laughs> overhead with the clubs, but we were never owners. So we didn't take on any of that risk. We just built uh, lists of people who would follow us as the promoters. And, you know, we might stay 18 months at a club until it was no longer hot. And then we would move everybody to the next hot club. So it was, it was an asset light business and we'd just take 15% or 20% off the top of, of the gross. So uh, I, I wound up doing that for 10 years. Uh, I worked at 40 different clubs wow. in Manhattan. I probably got to top eight or top 10. You know, there were a bunch of different groups running different parties for different groups. But, you know, I remember one night, you know, I was up in the DJ booth with a bottle of champagne in my hand and uh, Jay-Z's <laughs> at table one underneath me. Uh, and I'm at table two with a bunch of beautiful girls and Puffy's at table three. And, you know, this is the life, you know, looking down on all the revelers who are spending uh, incredible amounts of money on, on alcohol. Maybe the moment of truth uh, or catharsis happened at 28 years old when half my body uh, unexplainably went numb. Uh, and, you know, I was convinced that something was very wrong with me. I went to see every doctor I could and I got the MRIs and the brain scans and I uh, was connected to EKGs and they couldn't find anything wrong with me. Uh, my club partner, uh, my business partner is like, dude, <laughs> stop doing cocaine. You smoke <laughs> and, and you smoke 60 cigarettes a day. Like you smoke three packs of Marlboro Reds. Like no wonder your body's breaking down. It's screaming out. Stop. I was going to say so, unexplicably went numb. I don't know. I think there yeah, might maybe be not uh, some telltale signs here. Maybe, exactly. Maybe not unexplicably. But, but I think... You know, we were all living like we were going to live forever. I have this this realization that, wow, what if I had a brain tumor? What if I was going to die in the next you know month or two? What would my life have amounted to? And, you know, this is cliche, but, you know, you kind of think of you know, what, what goes on your tombstone. Yeah. And the only thing I could think that would have gone on my tombstone was here lies a man who has gotten a million people wasted. I mean, I probably had gotten to a million at that point. 
I mean, that and is unique. It's unique, but you know, not much of a legacy. <laughs> True. Uh, not, not, not much to be proud of. So I uh, had a real um, kind of crisis of conscience, a crisis of faith. You know, I remember thinking like, do I still believe in heaven and hell? Uh, if, if I do, I'm definitely not going to heaven, <laughs> not the way I've been living. And, you know, I think I realized how far I'd come from that foundation of spirituality and morality that my parents had tried so hard to instill in me. And I, I wanted to come home. And I just got this simple idea. What if I took one year, a kind of a, a tithe, you know, 10% of the, the decade that I'd selfishly wasted, and I tried to be useful to people less fortunate. Uh, and did I have anything to offer? So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about this idea. I sell everything I own. I'm going to start life over at 28 years old. And I start applying to volunteer for the famous humanitarian organizations I tangentially heard of. Uh, World Vision, <laughs> Save the Children, <laughs> UNICEF, Doctors Without Borders, right? That sounds sexy. Uh, you know, the, the Red Cross. And maybe no surprise to anybody listening, I'm denied by every single organization I apply to because it turns out serious, credible humanitarian organizations are not in the hunt for nightclub promoters uh, to add to their you know, volunteer uh, repertoire. So I, I remember being so frustrated here. I want to serve and I thought I had something to offer. I mean, I could get 500 people to stand outside one-way glass and queue outside a velvet rope, you know, begging to be let in. Um, but I wasn't sure how those skills would quite transfer. So finally, one organization writes me back and says, hey, Scott, if you're willing to pay us $500 every month to volunteer, and if you're willing to go live in the poorest country in the world, uh, Liberia, which had just come out of a 14-year civil war, you can volunteer with us as a photojournalist. And you know, my my life changed so dramatically. I went from you know, clubs and fashion and a world of of luxury to a country uh, with no electricity, with no running water, with no sewage, uh, with no mail system, just a completely broken country that had just come out of 14 years of civil war. Um, many people might be familiar with Charles Taylor, uh, who was the warlord there that that used children to just ransack and, and devastate this, this West African nation. So uh, I was there on a mission with a group of doctors and surgeons, all volunteers, who operated from a massive 522-foot hospital ship. So imagine an old cruise liner that had been repurposed for a, a floating hospital. And we would pull into the port at Liberia and thousands and thousands of sick people would be waiting for our doctors, uh, hoping to be seen and hoping to get a, a slot on the ship for surgery, for, for treatment. Um, just to give you know, context at the time, uh, Liberia had one doctor for every 50,000 citizens. Wow. We have a doctor for every 280, I think, Americans. So if you got sick in this country, I mean, you were completely out of luck. If your child got sick, your child died, um, unless you could find, you know, the one doctor, uh, you know, in, in your whole state. Um, but even then, there was no place for the doctors. To, there were no hospitals that were working. There was no electricity at the hospitals. 
So uh, I, I, you know, was kind of confronted immediately with uh, a need so vast and so visceral, uh, flesh-eating disease, leprosy, uh, you know, massive facial tumors the size of volleyballs, um, you know, just what happens to millions of people if there's absolutely no health care for many years. And I was taking pictures uh, before and after these transformative surgeries, some of them 12 hour surgeries, some of them 15 hour wow. surgeries as, uh, as you know, tumors would be removed or bone grafts and skin grafts. Um, so, uh, the cool thing was, you know, I had this big guest list from 10 years of nightclubs and back then email open rates were like 95%. So if you were on my club list, you know, you went from getting an invitation to the Prada megastore opening in Soho, you know, sponsored by, you know, MTV or something to these pictures of leprosy uh, and, a, and a patient being treated or a 65-year-old woman with a cleft lip uh, getting her face and her life and her dignity back, you know, through a 20-minute surgery. So people were really uh, interested. I mean, obviously some people unsubscribed and said, <laughs> you know, I didn't sign up for you know, extreme poverty in West Africa in some country I've never even heard of. But, you know, others began to be really interested and said, well, how, how could I help? How could I contribute? How much do these surgeries cost? Could I sponsor a surgery, you know, from, from New York or from LA? Uh, and I think I learned, you know, very quickly uh, the power of telling a different story. The story I'd been telling for 10 years is your life had meaning if you got past the velvet rope and you spent $1,000 on booze uh, and maybe you went home with a pretty boy or a pretty girl. And telling the stories of these heroic humanitarian medical professionals and the heroic stories of these people who had just struggled, they had waited, they had fought on with no hope. And then one day a ship full of the best doctors in the world from 40 countries arrives and and heals them so it's a really powerful experience yeah how long was that first trip the first trip was a year wow. uh and then i came back to new york for a few months and i put on a, a gallery exhibition to raise awareness and money and invited all my club friends in uh wound up raising almost a hundred thousand uh, dollars for you know the next batch of medical surgeries and then i went back to liberia for another year um, and, and that, you know, there was a kind of an unlock there. I had taken $100,000 of donations from my friends. I wanted to follow their money. I wanted to show them that, you know, because they had given, you know, we weren't going to start driving, you know, Lexuses around Africa. Yeah. Um, you know, the 52-year-old the, the cruise ship, um, you know, was not now, you know, getting some nice upgrade. But you know, more lives were being changed. Doctors were able to reach more people with this life-saving uh, surgeries because they had given. So that was really powerful that second year as I just kept telling stories of, of the lives now that some of my friends and some of my colleagues had changed through their generosity and giving. And then the second year uh, was where I discovered the problem that you know now I've spent almost two decades working on, which was... Uh, which was dirty water. And as I spent more and more time in the rural areas, uh, off the ship, out of uh, the main capital town, the, the capital city, uh, I, I saw people drinking from 
brown, muddy swamps. I saw children knee deep in disgusting, algae filled, murky green water and drinking from it. And I learned two important things. I learned that half of the country was drinking disgusting water that was making them sick. And I learned half the disease in the country was because people were drinking dirty water and didn't have access to sanitation, uh, toilets, and, and hygiene. So, you know, there was this was kind of a really big discovery that, you know, wow, we're treating the symptoms, not the cause. And by the way, you know, Andy, we were turning thousands of people away. So far more sick people would turn up to see our doctors than we could ever handle. Oh, I can imagine. So the, the problem was an order of magnitude larger than the 1,500 surgeries we could perform. 7,000 people, 10,000 people would need surgeries. So I wound up sharing some of the photos that I'd taken with the chief medical officer. And just as an aside, uh, an amazing story. This was a plastic surgeon from California, a guy named Dr. Gary Parker. He'd heard about the ship, signed up for three months to do a three-month volunteer tour and when I joined, he'd been there 26 years. He just never Gosh. went back to his plastic surgery practice in California. It was and that impactful became, uh, and powerful to him. His life's work. Yeah. So, you know, he was, he was this uh, moral compass of the ship and a, a very wise man who'd been there for a quarter of a century. And I remember showing him what I was seeing out there in the villages saying, Dr. Gary, like, look at what these people are drinking. You know, no wonder people have stuff growing on their face. You know, no wonder people have flesh eating disease. Um, and and he said, like, kind of duh. <laughs> yeah, we all know this. And he said, I'll tell you what, you know, if you really cared about health, if you cared about global health, you know, you wouldn't help us raise money for the next 1500 surgeries. You would just go get everybody in the world access to clean water. He said, you'd be the greatest physician the world had ever seen. If you, if you provided the most basic need for human health, clean water. And, you know, Andy, I was 30. So I'm like, well, okay. How many people don't have water? Like, oh, <laughs> 1.2 billion people. You know, one in six people alive don't have clean water. So why don't you go work on that? And I just said, okay. <laughs> and I came back to New York City at the end of the second tour. I was 30. I found out uh, I was now $40,000 in debt because my nightclub uh, partner had not dissolved our LLC like he said he was gonna, nor had he paid any taxes. Very so, kind of him. You know, and, and by the way, you know, I had no savings. I'd given everything I had to, to Mercy Ships and the people that I'd met uh, in West Africa. And nightclub promoters are not very good at saving anyway. You know, we're, we're good at spending above our means. So it wasn't a great time maybe to start a charity uh, with no place to live and $40,000 of debt. But I wound up getting free rent on a closet floor uh, in Soho, New York, on a walk-in closet floor, and said, "I'm I'm going to just start." And I I remember, you know, well, how do you start a charity? I think I picked up charities for dummies, <laughs> you know, one of those yellow books. Like, okay, well, you need lawyers, and you need to go file to get a five hundred one c three tax exempt status. And you know, I remember thinking at the time, like, oh my gosh, like, what if they plug in my social security number? I can see that I, you know, I owe taxes, and like, I'm not a guy you give a a charitable license to. But I, I, I had like this deep conviction that this was what I was supposed to do and that this 
um, this was going to be my life's calling and, and then it would work. Um, so I just, I just started and, you know, I didn't have any good, good ideas for naming it at the time. So I called it charity water. <laughs> We're a charity that helps people get water. So what was your that first move I could do? Yeah. I, I mean, I like it. Uh, trust me. I've come up with some names that are far worse than that. <laughs> Can you paint a global picture as far as water supply, where sure, it's the sure. worst total, you know, just yeah. kind of the condition of the global water yeah. ecosystem. Okay. Well, I started 16 years ago, so we've made an enormous amount of progress uh, as, as a, as a sector, uh, even as, as our organization and, and as a, as a world. So um, that said, as we record this today, 771 million humans are drinking dirty water today. So one in 10 people alive on the planet uh, are not um, experiencing what, you know, I bet every single person here uh, experienced throughout the day today and took for granted uh, the water that we use to brush our teeth and take our shower and make our coffee and, uh, you know, put in our uh, bottle on the way to the gym, um, you know, to flush our toilets, uh, give our kids a bath. One in 10 people have never had that experience. 82% of those people live in rural areas. And 18% live in cities and towns. So think of, you know, maybe a slum in Nairobi or in India. Um, that's the smaller, most of these people are now in, you know, harder to reach areas. Uh, so the, the rural populations. Um, you know, what else can I say about water? Water, you know, when you don't have it affects just about every aspect of your life. Uh, it massively impacts health. So uh, 2,000 kids will die today. Uh, because they are drinking dirty water. It's kids under the age of five that are most vulnerable. So I have a six and eight-year-old now uh, and one on the way, <laughs> uh, an unexpected one on the way, I should say, <laughs> as I'm almost 50, but, uh, and so it goes. Uh, my kids now, you know, would just be sick with diarrhea and dysentery all the time. Um, they're, but, you know, my, uh, my newest child born would be very vulnerable for the next five years to death by bad water. Um, so there's a huge health implication. Uh, there's an education uh, ramifications to not having water. Um, this is a shocking stat for people, but one in three schools in the world don't have clean water. Really? So imagine sending your, your child to a school without water. They also don't have toilets. And the sanitation is so important for teenage girls who will get their period and stay home for five days every month. Yeah. Uh, not, not go, not willing to go to a school with no water, with no toilets. And then often you know, they fall behind in their studies. There's enormous social pressure already for girls to go and get the water and go and get the firewood and be useful around the house. So, you know, water is one of the top reasons why girls drop out of school, why they don't finish their education throughout the developing world. Um, you know, the third one is just time. Uh, women, and I remember when I started Charity Water, I couldn't believe this, but came across the stat that 40 billion hours are wasted by women just in Africa walking for water every single year, walking for water that's not even clean. Uh, I realize this is a slightly ironic um, comparison, but 40 billion hours does not add up to the entire global workforce of the country of France. So every single person in France uh, going to work, you know, being productive over a year does not add up to the amount of time wasted by women just in Africa walking for water. 
So, you know, it's a huge burden. And, you know, I'm not exaggerating here. I mean, I've now been to 72 countries. I've been to Africa more than 55 times. Women will spend seven hours a day often collecting water. And it's not five days a week. You don't get to take Saturday and Sunday off and chill. Uh, if you don't get water on Saturday and Sunday, your family goes without water. So, you know, imagine 49 wasted hours by, by the, you know, often even the, the head of the house, the woman uh, getting water that is then, you know, is, is poisoning you and your children. So it's a yeah. huge kind of, uh, you know, again, it's hard for so many people listening probably to even, you know, conceive of. You've never seen anyone drink dirty water. You've never walked seven hours to a faraway river that might dry up in the heat of the dry season where you even walk farther. You've never given birth by a swamp because you have no water at your home. Uh, so there's just, you know, so many kind of uh, problems in your life if you don't have clean water. The great news about the the water issue is it's also completely solvable. So unlike many other global challenges where we're scratching our heads, you know, how do we uh, how do we fix climate change? How do we, you know, fix education? Water is is a pretty easy fix. So there's not a single person alive who we do not know how to deliver clean and safe drinking water to. You know, we're not going fast enough. Um, to solve this problem, we're not making enough progress. And I was just sitting um, with a with a friend yesterday uh, who's who's in the charitable space, and you know, no no significant philanthropist has said this is their issue. You know, there is no uh, kind of foundation or you know or or multi billionaire that said I'm going to go out and solve this. So it's an underfunded. Uh, sector, I guess you could say, um, we're we're not going fast enough, even though it makes so much sense, and it touches so many other aspects of of human life. Why do you think that is? Because it doesn't affect us. I was going to say, I, you know? one of the most uh, impactful things that you said, which I suspect rings true for most people, is I have a, a water in front of me that I yeah don't think twice about because if I don't have access to this one over here off to the table, there's another yep. one. And if, if I run out of that, I can go to the bathroom that's just down the hallway or the store and I can get water. And it's lost on most people that the water that we use in our toilets for our waste is cleaner yes. than the water people have access to that you're talking about. And I've actually seen it myself and it was very impactful. I went to Kenya years ago yep, and we were there uh, more for an educational mission. We were building schools, but part of that was just kind of watching how the local people lived. And I followed a a line of women who were walking a very worn trail out of curiosity, and we were also invited to uh, to go with them. And the watering hole, their words, I would not have chosen those words. Um, you know, I put my hand into the water, and I could no longer see my hand about a quarter of an inch into the water. It was so dark, and it was so dirty. And they were filling the jugs, and the very classic kind of National Geographic portrait of, you know, yep. putting it on their head and walking in a line of of sisters or mothers or whatever role they may fill in that family going to provide the water. And they would do that. And some of them were walking miles and they would come right back and they would get a second load. But that water, like I said, my hand disappeared and unable to see it probably a quarter of an inch in. And they were using that for cooking, for bathing. Yep. Um, yep. It was startling. Shocking. Once you, yeah. once you see yeah. it, 
tough to forget. But most people haven't seen that. And and Andy, a lot of people don't know this. Of all of American philanthropy, only 4% goes overseas. 96% stays here to fix the needs that, that are in front of our face. Or, you know, you could argue goes to... Uh, the Stanford universities and Princeton's of the world and, you know, uh, which have, you know, multi-billion dollar endowments uh, or, or the hospitals that we drive by in our cities. So we're, we're already fighting for such a small amount of, you know, of the care uh, or yeah. the, the generosity that is coming from, because it's, it doesn't, it doesn't affect us. It affects other people over there who we don't see. And um, they're not in our local community. So, so how did you grow it? How did you start getting yeah, traction for Charity Water and having an impact overseas? I think the first thing was coming up with this different uh, business model. So as I was, I had the advantage of being 30, no philanthropic experience. My former gig was a nightclub promoter for 10 years. And then I ran around taking photos and writing stories with the doctors. So I, I was just talking to everyday people in New York that worked at VH1 or Chase Bank or Sephora. And as I started talking to them about my uh, my desire to bring everybody in the world clean water, I realized most of them don't trust charities. I mean, they're really cynical about philanthropy. And I came across a statistic in USA Today that found 42% of Americans just flat out said, we don't trust charities. Oh, interesting. And a more recent survey uh, by NYU found 70% of Americans believe charities waste their money. So I thought, well, what if we could do something different from a business model approach? What if I could open up two separate bank accounts and promise the public that 100% of every donation they would ever give would go directly to build water projects and get people clean water? And then in the second bank account, somehow I would raise all of that nasty overhead separately. The staff salaries, the office costs, yeah. uh, the you know the toner for the Epson copy machine, all that would be separate. Um, and I didn't know how I was going to do this, but I thought it would be very powerful, Andy. You know, hey, I've got a hundred dollars to go to give. Well, all hundred dollars is going to go directly to a woman in Malawi, or to a child in in Bangladesh. You know, a village in Bangladesh. Probably the most important thing is what we wouldn't do. We wouldn't send guys that look like me or Westerners over to Africa or India or Southeast Asia to drill wells. Uh, we would build the movement, we'd raise the capital, we'd raise the awareness, and then we'd hire locals in each of these countries to sustainably and culturally, uh, you know, in a culturally appropriate way, build the projects. And as we scaled, we would create hopefully thousands of local jobs. And they'd be the ones on the ground getting the credit. They would be the ones leading you know, their countries forward. So I put all that together. And day one, the only idea I had was to go back into the nightclubs get a club donated and throw my 31st birthday party. And I managed to get open bar donated uh, and from the club owner. And I invited uh, everybody on my list to come and 700 people came to the party and they had to donate $20 to get in the door. So at the end of the night in this big plexi box, we had $15,000 in cash and we counted it very carefully. And, you know, everybody audited it and took pictures of it and we took it to the bank and then we took 100% of that $15,000 uh, to Northern Uganda and we built our first well. And then we sent the photos of the completed project. We sent GPS coordinates uh, and the satellite image. We sent video back to all the 700 people who gave $20. And we said, here's exactly where your money went. 
And here are the people you helped. And people were so blown away by that. You know, they never expected to hear from a charity, you know, going to some club, throwing 20 bucks in a bin and then drinking for free, that we realized we were onto something very powerful that most charities just didn't do. They weren't designed to follow up, to close the loop uh, on donations. So we tried to just build that into the core of how Charity Water would grow and behave and, and scale. And that turned out to be, you know, a real, um, I, th I think a real key to our, you know, to our success. Isn't it amazing how something that could be considered simple, like follow through, could have such an impact, just connecting the dots between your generous donation and the impact that it had on somebody you will likely never meet or know of their existence and the power that that could have. It's true. It's true. Yeah. It sounds so simple, right? Simple, maybe, I don't know. You know, the simple, not easy. I don't know. Follow through seems simple and also not that hard. Yeah. <laughs> how many How many wells have you built at this point? I think like 150,000 now. So you know, if you fast cow. forward, if you fast forward 16 years, um, we have an amazing community of givers now that spans 150 countries. Uh, those generous people have now contributed over $750 million. Wow. Uh, and, and a lot of that, Andy, is through $20 and $50 and $100 donations. And, you know, we have families that will sponsor a whole community for $10,000, uh, you know, giving hundreds of people clean water. Um, but we've now helped 16.8 million people get access to water. Uh, last year, we helped 2 million people, you know, which works out to you know, 5,700 people every day of the year got clean water because of the charity water community. So you know, we, you know, we, we raised $100 million last year um, thanks to this global group of supporters and you know we're still able 16 years later to promise that 100% of all these donations go directly to the field because now 130 families pay all the overhead so it's not a big mystery in the in the other bank account uh entrepreneurs and business leaders say we don't mind paying for the staff we'll pay for the flights we'll pay for the phone bills and the insurance so that millions of donors out there from the public don't have to it's a great business model that you put together. I can't fault people for being skeptical or leery of charities. Um, I've interfaced yeah. a bit uh, over my time out of the military with some veteran-based charities. And unfortunately, for every example that you have of one that is incredibly transparent and has a very high pass-through rate on donations, there are some huge national examples where one cent two cent, three cents out of every dollar actually went towards the initiative yeah. that it was designed for. So I, I don't I don't blame the skepticism, but I think that's a fantastic way to really be clear about who you are and what you're doing. You don't have to pull from the donation because I've, I've tried to raise money twice uh, so far in my life. Both times I can say exactly the same thing. It's the most difficult thing I've ever tried to do. Out of all my military service and everything that I've tried to do, trying to separate somebody's dollar from their wallet, regardless of the nobility of the cause, is unbelievable. Because they ask questions like your business structure answers. How much of my money is actually going towards this? Yeah. You know, How much is going to get lost yeah. along the way? And that's exactly the question that I ask as well. So I think it's a fantastic business model that provides that transparency. And then you can just show that amazing 100% pass-through. I think that's amazing. What would you like to close it out with? I'll leave you with the uh, closing words. 
You know, one of my favorite quotes uh, that's animated me um, is uh, somebody was passing in New York City deli uh, 15 years ago and sent me this picture and said, do not be afraid of work that has no end. Uh, do not be afraid of work that has no end. And, you know, I kind of think of that in terms of our work. If you are, if you are a person that is trying to use your resources, uh, your time, your talent, your money in the service of others. If you're looking out in your across your local community, across the global community saying, how can I help? How can I be useful in ending needless suffering? Then it's a never ending journey. You know, there's no drop the mic moment. Uh, you know, sometimes people say, so what are you gonna do when everybody on earth has access to clean water? You know, what are you gonna do then? Because we really do believe it's possible. I mean, we're going to try to bring this 771 million down to zero. Um, it is possible with resources. You know, and I, I think the answer that they're, you know, hoping for is like, well, I'm going to go work at Goldman Sachs and try and make a couple million dollars <laughs> or, you know, go start a tech company. And I think the real answer is I would hope that we would take our global community. We would take everybody in the spring, you know, and say, hey, we accomplished something extraordinary what else could we do together? Is anybody going to bed hungry at night? Is anybody going to bed without shelter? Uh, you know, what other basic needs, what other suffering out there might we be able to use our resources to improve human life? Um, and I think, you know, that, that, that idea of kind of endless work used to really scare me. And, and now it's something I've come to, to embrace and it, it animates me. I like that a lot. It, it's more about enjoying the journey than the end state. I think it's a great way to approach life or yeah. issues like, you know, access to clean water throughout the globe. Yeah. If you want to learn more about Scott's organization, please visit charitywater.org to learn more and to set up your own social fundraising campaign. You can also follow them on Instagram at charitywater. Like this is just something you dream about. All right, action. 